Good morning and welcome to Grace and Peace Church. I've got my phone, which is going to tell me how much time I am going here. So, if, you know, Grace and Peace has been, been uh, not, not just kind of like my little brainchild, but Grace and Peace Church is actually, there's been people who've been meeting for three years and praying that there would be a church in downtown. And uh, some of those people were, were Sarah and, and Gary Bostrom, uh, Tim and Jeannie O'Donnell, Blaze and Elizabeth Selby, Micah and Stephanie Redfield, Dave and Betty Gardner, and then there were some other leaders who have helped. Uh, there was also Mark and Becky Kyle, Gina and Martin Key, Andrew and Amy Rediger, Andy and Lisa Brown, my wife Holly and the kids, and so all those people who've kind of who've given their time and their, their talents and efforts to start a church here, uh, uh, if you see them, say thank you. Serving, caring for this community. They love the community. So we are talking about seven signs and seven statements in the book of John that indicate that Jesus is a lot more than just a uh, teacher, but he is a savior. In fact, the savior, the savior of the world. And the thing is, is when I was a little man, a little wee one, in Alamogordo, New Mexico, a little tiny pocket of, in a desert town, I can remember this presidential rally coming in town, and, and there, the candidate came in, in their giant motorcade, and got everyone's attention, and made sweeping promises, you know, it was like, I will cut taxes. I will reform prisons. I'll stop war. I'll bring peace. I will kiss a hundred babies. You know, and, and every four years, you get these presidential candidates making these sweeping promises that they're going to bring peace, that they're going to cause everything to be right and wonderful again. Uh, but that isn't what happens, is it? They promise to be the savior, but they end up failing. They end up being more lame than likable in the end. And by the time you're 40, you're pretty disillusioned with anything that sounds like sweeping rhetoric about anyone who's going to change anything. You realize they're going to fall, they're going to fail, and they're not going to live up to my expectations. But here's the thing. We fall for it every day. We fall for a candidate every day that says the same thing. You know, uh, the, the, we, we're always falling for something that promises to make our lives paradise. We look for the next relationship, the next job, the next home, the next exercise program, the next car, the next South Beach diet, the next teacher, the next teaching. And they're all just candidates, though. You know, they have good things to say, and some of them may be bad, like really important, really helpful in our lives, but they cannot and they will not end up bringing us the lasting joy paradise. It doesn't give us the feast that our hearts long for, and we're all left hungry in the end. In the end, what happens is we pull back the curtain, and what is revealed? We end up seeing and finding out that what was behind the curtain was nothing of the candidates, was nothing but a feeble old gray-haired man, just full of smoke and mirrors. He's powerless, and he's just fooling people with tricks. And much of our lives are filled with disappointments like that. And as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz says, if you were great and powerful, you would keep your promises. If you were great and powerful, you would keep your promises. But is that what Jesus is? Is he just an old man behind, behind the curtains <coughs> pulling strings? Uh, I don't think so. John isn't telling us that. He's saying, 
He isn't saying it's all up to you. It isn't all smoke and mirrors. John is showing us through signs that Jesus is more than just some candidate vying for our votes. John records the first sign, or this first sign, to be a primary sign. This is his agenda. This is Jesus' presidential agenda. Do you know what it is? It's wine. To which some people are like, yes! You know, and if, and if you've ever been around some Christians that are just kind of like dour and down and always like, that's not good, if the culture is bad, I think they missed out with the fact that Jesus comes in to bring the wine, the joy, the goodness. That's what he's come to do. And so that's why John records it. This is his presidential platform. This is his candidacy, and John's recording it. He's showing that Jesus is something else, someone else entirely. He is the Christ the Messiah, the promised one, he's God in the flesh, he's the Savior that all our hearts long for. So this story, this wedding at Cana, concludes Jesus' first week of ministry, and it happens at a wedding. In the creation narrative, the narrative uh, in, in the beginning of the book of the Bible, uh, concludes in Genesis 2 with a wedding. So John starts with a wedding, Genesis starts with a wedding, and what John is doing is he is now create, he's, he's setting up, he's mimicking that creation narrative in order to show you that through Jesus, we have recreation. We're having the world remade. Everything is being put back into place. Also, John records that this happens on the third day to start training your ear to hear about this resurrection that will happen on the third day. And the resurrection is the beginning of the renewal of all things. Notice that John uses the word sign. He doesn't use miracle. This is the first of Jesus' miracles. No. It's this word sign. And a miracle is just a word used for an event that is not readily explained by our natural processes. But a sign is something that points to a greater reality. It's showing the way to the, to the truth. It's pulling back the curtain so you understand what's really going on. And what is it showing? It says it is his glory, God's glory. In fact, Jesus' glory. The visible manifestation of his worth. It's his honor, value, and excellence gone public. In Jesus, those who believe God and believe, believe saw God himself. As it says, and it says elsewhere, no one else has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Jesus is God made visible. The chief place that John the, the, the chief place that John's gospel is going to show this is on the cross. And it also then it concludes our, our little narrative. It concludes with it saying, and his disciples believed in him. It's not just mental assent. It's not like, yes, I, I get that. But rather it says that, it, that they believed in him. And there's this directional quality. It was meaning bringing your entire life under the jurisdiction of Jesus. That they believed in him. That he is the one who is going to create the festival joy for them. They believed into him. So what does the, the sign show? It shows that Jesus is the Lord of wine. He's the one that brings the feasting, the hope of all of our hearts. He's the Savior that every heart craves. He's the one who creates the feast, the lasting joy that you need. And John shows it in two ways. So John shows that Jesus is the Savior, and he shows it in two ways. The wine and the wedding. Jesus is the Savior, shows it in two ways. The wine and the wedding. First, wine. Wine was a sign of celebration, gladness, joy. It was feasting. Uh, it, was, it, it was also a sign of the harvest. 
And for it to run out was kind of a bad omen. Like, oh no, the feasting's done. We ran out of wine. And so that's terrible. Wine also signifies the Savior's work in the life of his people. It's a sign of his rescue. In Isaiah 25, which we read earlier, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Notice it says wine twice. It's a big deal. And in the image God gives of his coming rescue and the renewal, it's an image of God showing, like, this is what it's going to look like. This is what the world's going to look like. This is what the renewal of all things is. Amos tells us that the mountain shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. But it runs out. It's premature. It's a premature ending to the festivities. Mary, she goes off and says, hey, Jesus, I need your help. And it appears that Jesus, or I mean Mary at this time, was probably a, uh, a person who was helping out with the, with the wedding feast. And so she's there, and she, she asks Jesus, and, there, and she doesn't ask Joseph because there's good indications that Joseph by this time was dead. And so it's up to Jesus. She needs help. Maybe she was helping with the food. She's organizing something, and so she asks for help. And so there's Jesus. And what does he say? You know, what does he say? What, it, he goes and, you know, it, does he say, uh, no, I'm not going to help you from social embarrassment? No, he says, I'm going to help out, but I'm going to do it my way. I'll, I'm, let me do it my way. It's so interesting. So why does Jesus record this sign? Why is it of primary importance? Is, is it because Jesus can save us from social embarrassment? Is it because he can help us out whenever we need a little help? I don't think so. John is showing this because Jesus is the Lord of wine. He's the bringer of gladness, of festival joy. Uh, someone's like, come on, preacher boy. Why do you say that? Show me in the text. Okay, let's go. And so, Jesus, notice Jesus' response to Mary. He says, woman. It's not necessarily like this deriding way, but it's creating some polite distance. He seems a bit distracted or preoccupied, and he says, uh, what does this have to do with me? If you were to translate it flatly, he would say, uh, what is between me and you, woman? That's, that's how it would translate. Or as an idiom would go, it would be like, uh, what hold do you have over me? You can't leverage me. Which reminds us that some people follow Jesus because they believe him to be useful. Some people follow Jesus as a means to check their bases. Some follow Jesus as, uh, because they believe he has some good teachings. But John, the writer, he isn't playing that. No. He's saying Christians. Christians follow Jesus because they believe he's God. He's the Savior of the world. Now this term woman. The other time he uses the term woman was uh, during when, when he was dying on the cross. And he uses it for his mom. And he says, looks over to his mom and says, woman, your son. He motions over to John. Woman, your son. And the significance of woman is probably fairly lost on us. The Bible tells us that God, from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, that he's going to do away with sin, with the order of this world, with the way things are just terrible all the time. He's going to do away with it. He's going to defeat it. And how is he going to do it? He was going to do it by the seed or the offspring of this woman. And for John to record... This instance, 
and he says he called her woman, it is almost as if he is saying, look, here's the promised one. Here's the one who's going to undo everything. Don't you see? And he records it that way. But then, you know, uh, the child would also, this child that was promised, Jesus would, all, would be the blessing for all peoples. And God was going to do it. God do it, does it by this offspring of the woman. And so here's the blessing, John says. But then Jesus in the story says, it's not my hour. It's not my hour. It's not time. I'm not ready yet. And throughout the book of John, the author, he, he keeps following this thread of Jesus' hour. It would be the time that he would be glorified. Specifically, he talks about his crucifixion. It wasn't his time, because through the crucifixion, he was going to bring in festival joy. He was going to bring in the feasting wine. But Mary's response wasn't like, how dare you call me woman? She understands that Jesus, or that she could leverage Jesus, even her own son. She didn't have any holds on him. So what does she say, though? She says, looks over to the servants who are kind of probably looking at her. He's like, what do we do now? And he says, and she says to them, do whatever he tells you. You see what Mary's doing? Mary's living out faith. She's living out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right there in front of her Lord. She motions and says, okay, do whatever he says. Check out that John also makes, he makes mention of particular details about this wine. It starts off with these jars of purification. They're 20 to 30 gallon jars, big jars. We're talking like, okay, we're in Colorado, so it's probably like a rainwater jug that's hanging down your spout. So it's about that size, okay? And so they bring these over, and they're like, okay, what do you want us to do? And he says, fill them to the brim. They fill them to the brim, to the very top. These are jars for purification. And jars for purification was meant to wash you before you went to worship and other things that is so that you wouldn't become ceremonially unclean. And so for John to make mention of this, that there were jars of purification, that they were filled to the brim, and then Jesus turns water into wine, means that these jars could never, ever be used for purification again. It is as if John is saying, don't you see when Jesus brings the wine... He's put an end to that need for purification. He has superseded it. You don't need it anymore because he has brought in a new time. Each was holding 20 to 30 gallons. If you're good at math, that's somewhere around 120 to 180 gallons. Uh, here's a fun one. I actually messed it up, so I had to re How do you mess up that math? So I messed up that math. So 120 gallons to 180 uh, gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. Uh, in college, I would say that the party had just gotten lit, okay? So the joy of the wine was going to be lasting and overflowing. Also, notice that it talks about the quality of the wine. What, is it, what does it say? The master of the feast is over there is like, hey, uh, bridegroom, dude. So he comes over to the bridegroom like, what do you want? He goes, have you tasted this? Have you tasted this wine? You know, everybody else says... You know, everyone, everyone brings a good wine first, and when everyone's drink, drunk freely, then you bring the mediocre two-buck chuck to the Boda box, and then you have, you, then, then they're like, oh, they don't even care about the taste, but all of a sudden the master of the feast is saying, this is the heaviest, greatest wine ever. What have you done? This is so backwards. But it's better. It's better wine. The wine of Jesus is better than the wine of moralism. 
better than the wine of any kind of teaching that you could possibly say that says, you know, if I do these ten things, then God will approve of me. It's better than that. Then it also shows that he is better than the master of the feast. The master of ceremony, or the master of the feast was kind of like the MC. All right? So he was in charge of everything that the bridegroom had bought, and he would make the, make the ways, that, so he would uh, arrange everything, make sure everyone was in place. But Jesus had usurped that, kind of went around that, and it's showing Jesus is even better than the master of the feast. And in the background of a lot of people's minds, the Roman, Roman mythology was this idea, this myth of Dionysius, the god of wine, the god of wine. And what did Jesus just do? He made 120 to 180 gallons of the heaviest, richest, greatest wine ever. And he did it, but he took water and did it. That's, that's, that, that, it is showing that every other way is not good enough in comparison to Jesus. Now all its other, all the other wine has run its course. There's many things in life, though, that are going to remind us that, that the wine has run out on our life, that the party's over. Mm-hmm. We have good indications of this every time we, we realize what we're seeking happiness out of. You know, and so, so think about this. Uh, what do you daydream about? What do you daydream about? When I was a little kid, I used to daydream about, like, the next toy that I was going to get, and this toy was going to do it for me. As soon as I got that toy, life was going to be grand. It was going to be awesome. I couldn't even see past that. But as soon as you get the toy, what do you start doing? As soon as the arm breaks off the G.I. Joe and you have to Frankenstein it, you know, what happens? All that glitters isn't gold. You start looking for something bigger and better. You start looking for something bigger and better. And so maybe we need to ask, whenever, you're, whenever it's quiet at work, when there's not another thing to check on Facebook, what are you daydreaming about? Whatever it is you're daydreaming about, Whatever you're, you're wondering what's going to bring me festival joy, festival wine, and all that goodness, it's just replacing Jesus. And Christians and non-Christians, they're not exempt from it. And so we always daydream about what's going to give us true lasting happiness, but will it really last? There's traditionally two ways that we envision obtaining uh, lasting joy. There's the religious way and the irreligious way. The religious way tells you, do these ten things, follow the eightfold path, follow these five pillars. Do this, and you'll have true, lasting joy. The irreligious way informs you that, oh, come on, you must work hard to achieve, and then you'll have money. And then you'll be able to put your best foot forward. You'll have a great reputation on Facebook and Instagram. You'll be wonderful. People will love you. You have to brand yourself. The interesting thing about Christianity is that, it, that, is that it's Jesus loving you unconditionally, apart from any achievement that you have done, either religiously or irreligiously. It means that lasting joy does not come from your achievement. It's not dependent on you. In fact, one of the first things you have to confess as a Christian is that you can't achieve God's blessing. It is only comes by God's grace, by Him giving it to you. So the problem with the religious way and the irreligious way is the same, same problem. The ultimate person in control is all about you. It's all on you to cover up. It's all on you to cover up the shame that you might have been feeling since you were a little kid. And they're all feeble ways. Maybe we're all trying to cover up our feelings of worthlessness because you always feel like you have to maintain this achievement. But it's up to you. 
How are you going to do that? Uh, in the um, show The Good Life, Kristen Bell plays this lady who accidentally gets into the good place into heaven. And one of her first most memorable lines was probably about episode four, when she said, when she tells her, her soulmate, her friend, she says, I, I want to prove that I deserve to be here. I want to I prove that I deserve to be here. And that's the thing. Even Christians are fighting to show that we, we, I deserve to be here. But that's not Christianity. You know, what happens then is you always become a slave to trying to prove yourself worthy. You always have to maintain a real particular level. And that's the dangerous thing about if you achieve any kind of level. As soon as you achieve some sort of level, you're going to start feeling like, well, I'm better than so-and-so. At least I didn't murder anybody. Like, come on, man, that's a low standard. Okay, you're holding, you know, uh, better than them. You start to think that you're like, you're more righteous. You become judgmental toward others. You begin to dehumanize other people. And then you know what happens. You become an old skull. Don't do that. Drop the jello, little kid. Like, come on. Nobody likes that. You know what happens if you're a skull? Deep down, you're a hypocrite. Imagine if you held yourself up to the same standard you hold up everybody else. Good luck being approved there. It's really hard. And you can only hold that facade for so long. That type of joylessness of a scold of the self-righteous is not free, gracious wine of Jesus. Notice, though, that Jesus doesn't pay special treatment even to his mother. Jesus can't be strong-armed by your good deeds. So all that glitters is not gold. And what we desire most might not bring us the lasting joy we desire. So a poet during the gold rush, Robert Service, put it well. And he wrote, I want the gold. And I sought it. I scrambled and mucked like a slave. Wasn't famine or scurvy. I fought it. I hurled my youth into a grave. I wanted the gold, and I got it. Came out with a fortune last fall. Yet somehow life's not what I thought it. And somehow the gold isn't all. As St. Augustine says in a prayer, Lord, you have made our hearts for you, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. So, when you're not the one who brings your own wine, then you have no room to be self-righteous and look down on others. But we're all looking for wine. We're all looking for festival joy. We're all looking for something to bring us from shame to joy, guilt to vindication, Sorrow to singing, from anxiety to rest. Where does it come from? It's from the confession that Jesus is the Lord of wine. And he's not just an example about how to get wine. He's the Lord of wine. If he was only an example to be compared to, then you're going to be damned. Why? Because imagine comparing yourself to Jesus. He fed 5,000. I could barely feed my kids with peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> going to be damned. Now, our lives may be pretty good now, but how do we go from mediocre wine to overflowing, strong, heady wine that lasts forever? And Jesus says, it's his hour. Notice he says to, the, to, his, to his mother, it's not my hour. It wasn't his hour. He was thinking about that hour, about how he was going to bring about the true wine we all long for. But he says... It's not my time. 
He's thinking about what it'll cost him to get there. So there Jesus was. He was pondering and daydreaming at the wedding and thinking about what is it going to take to bring the true and better wine, the true feast. He was thinking about all, the one thing that could only bring him true happiness and bring people true happiness. It was his hour. You see, as, as Edmund Clowney says, there is everybody enjoying the most wonderful, greatest wine ever. And he's thinking about the wine that he's going to have to drink. The bitter wine. The wine of wrath. For you. So you can enjoy the best wine. So you can have true, lasting, festival joy. And the second way that he does this is through what is known in, through this wedding. And so weddings were these week-long feasts during the first century. A week-long feast. It celebrated the coming together of two families. And the Bible is interesting because it opens in Genesis 2 with a wedding and closes in Revelation with a wedding. And it is, it, it is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so he's thinking about a time when he's going to be united to his bride. You know, it would be his people, like you and me. We're his bride, it says. So that means rich, poor, young, old, people who didn't do it right are there, and they're beautiful, and they're made beautiful. How does he do it? Is it just because, uh, it, it, how do we get to that wedding? Is it just because Jesus provides better wine? And, and he's just uh, absorbing a little bit of social embarrassment for them. Yeah, but it's a lot more than that. You see, John is showing that Jesus is the true and better bridegroom that lays down his life and makes the ultimate payment for sin and for, so that he could have his, his wedding feast. Bridegrooms are on the hook for every penny that was spent. So he lays down everything for the one he loves. What do I mean? Well, let's think about it. Have you ever been uh, single at a wedding? At that moment, being single at a wedding, you realize, I am single at a wedding. <laughs> You're like, oh no. And somehow the spotlight from the, the couple suddenly becomes glaringly on you. And you're like, what in the world? You want to know why? Because all of a sudden you're, you're realizing, what is it going to cost to make you lovable? What is it going to cost at my wedding? Would I do decorations that way? How much is it going to cost? And you start thinking about that. What is it going to make me lovable? And at the same time, then we can start feeling the shame, and we start this internal dialogue of self-loathing, self-hatred, and we start saying to ourselves, you're not worthwhile. You're not desirable. You're not good enough. You'll always be lonely. We, we hear this internal dialogue all the time about ourselves. But at every way, when the bride is walking down the aisle, every bride is stunning. How in the world did that happen? Because on a fundamental level, the difference between how the bride feels about herself or how the groom feels about himself is always bridged by the occasion, by the love of one to the other. It's a bridge by the I do's, saying, I'm going to commit myself, and I'm going to allow myself to be crushed for the sake of you. Think of it this way. If uh, one party in the way, so say the groom or the, or the, uh, the uh, bride, has $20,000 of credit card debt, 
When you say I do, guess what? They share the credit card debt. But if the groom or the bride has uh, millions upon millions of dollars and they marry the other person, guess what? The other person is now a millionaire. How in the world does this happen? So the riches of the other is, is absorbed. And the debt of one is absorbed as well. You see, the story of Christianity is fundamentally about a God who has all the riches in the world coming to get his bride, even an unfaithful bride, and absorbs all her debt so she can be his. And that's including you. You're the bride of Christ. The riches of God meets the debt of his bride head on and is absorbed. And we become rich in him. With the commitment of I do and one blissful kiss, the bride and groom are united. And all the shame and guilt that we feel that separated the two are overcome and absorbed. You think about how this affects you and me. You always wonder, even, in the, even on a Sunday like this, I thought to myself, if no one shows up, am I worthwhile? Am I enough? Do you know what? On the cross, it allows me to hold my head up high and say, my worth isn't based on who shows up, who sings with us, who praises God. You know, deep down we're all looking for someone to redeem us, someone to, to absorb the debt. And Jesus is the one who takes on the debt himself. Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York City, says this, Being loved and not known is superficial. Being known and not loved is our greatest fear. But being fully loved and fully known is a lot like being loved by God. See, Jesus knows everything about you. And he says you're to die for. It's not my hour, Jesus says. This isn't his wedding. It wasn't his place to interject, to save the day, to restore joy. But he's thinking about what it's going to take. He's thinking about his hour. He's thinking about the price he's going to have to pay for to have his bride. To bring about the everlasting feast. See, God doesn't just want servants. He wants a love relationship. He wants unhindered intimacy with you. In which only a husband and wife could see only dimly. That's why at the wedding, we start to see who is this Jesus really. He's the true bridegroom who will absorb every one of your debts, all your shame, and he can make you beautiful. On the cross, there's Jesus. He's down on one knee proposing, and he's saying, will you have me? Will you have me? I can absorb all your debt, all your shame, all your guilt. Will you have me? And in every little moment of the Christian life, there's a commitment to say that we will have him over anything else, over all that glitters and that we believe is gold, and that we're going to bring festival joy, feasting joy. We say to Jesus, I'll have you over that. Let's Almighty and gracious God, you are the one who brings feasting and joy. It is by your goodness alone and your riches alone that our debt is paid and overcome.
as we come to the table of the true and better feast and just the down payment of what you're going to do, Lord. I pray that we would take it in faith, that we would call upon you. I pray, Lord, that now that we would take in faith, knowing that you are the Lord, the Lord of wine, and you are the true bridegroom who absorbs all our debts. Help us to worship you now. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. This meal is a meal for those who have faith. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ is God. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And so what you have set before you is just ordinary bread and wine. It is just a small token of the true feast set for us. Of what he's going to do. Of what he paid. And so we remember the payment of what he's done. And we sign it and seal it in bread and wine. Because it was on the night that he was betrayed, after Jesus had given thanks, he took bread and he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the cup of the, uh, cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink of it, or eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you do not believe that he covers you, we don't want you to do anything inauthentic to where you've been, to where you are in your spiritual walk. And when we come forward, we're going to come forward from these rows forward to here. You're going to take bread. You're going to take and eat, and you're going to take wine, and you're going to drink it, and then you're going to, there's people who will be praying at the end there as well. And so, uh, we ask that you come in faith. So, uh, those who are assisting can come now, and I'm going to pray for us. Our Lord God, please bless these elements. I pray that we would uh, be able to take in faith, and I pray that you and your goodness will be declared because you are the God of wine. We ask you to pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please come forward.